Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Hi, welcome to Weird Studies, and Happy New Year! That's my little joke. For working academics, the end of the summer marks the beginning of the new academic year, and the first day of class is imbued with feelings of excitement and new beginnings and grand ventures undertaken with a jaunty cheer somehow undimmed by the certain knowledge that in a couple of months you'll be burned out again. So it feels like New Year's, is what I'm saying. And J.F. and I have settled into that rhythm in recent years, taking a couple of weeks off in late summer and then coming back guns ablazing for a new season of Weird Studies. And so it is with this week's episode. We're back from the UK, tanned, rested, and ready, with two live shows we recorded during our travels ready to drop. But first, we need to do a little scene setting. For this episode, J.F. and I met up just as soon as the jet lag wore off, and we recorded a conversation on the adventures we'd just had. You can tell we were both still buzzing from the energy of our encounters with the Supernormal Festival and the Diverse Intelligences Summer Institute, or DC for short. DC is an interdisciplinary summer workshop for researchers working on problems related to cognition and mind, whether said mind might be found in humans, animals, machines, or who knows, maybe demons? That was our pitch to the DC folks, anyway. We try to make a case for intelligence as something out there, unembodied and unlocatable, even though sometimes we might find ourselves growing uneasy under its hidden gaze. That's not what we want to talk about in this episode, though. Instead, we talk about DC itself, and the extraordinary model of interdisciplinary praxis in bodies, interdisciplinarity, to use the barbarous jargon of the academy. Interdisciplinarity is what grammarians call a nominalization. You take a verb or an adjective, like interdisciplinary, and turn it into a noun, interdisciplinarity. Nominalizations always make you sound like a rush song, but even more insidiously, they convince you that something fluid in the world is to be frozen and dissected, the better to understand it. But moving, living things tend to die when you freeze them and so it is with the term interdisciplinarity. The very word hides a wish that the evanescent, fugitive experience of sparking conversation and understanding from across the boundaries of academic specialty could somehow be turned into a product, something fungible and readily replicated. Not that there aren't products that emerge from interdisciplinary work, but in this episode, J.F. and I focus on the verb, not the noun the event character of new thought, not its thing character. And this conversational gambit is just as helpful in talking about the Supernormal Festival as it is in talking about DC. You'll be hearing more about and from each of those zones before too long as we release our recordings from those events in the coming weeks. See, there's a couple of products right there. Score one for reification. Still, in setting the scene for you today, 
we might take a moment to think about all that does not survive the moment of its emergence. Your experience. The zone that is everywhere and nowhere. You're in it right now, you know. And now it's gone. By the way, one thing about the beginning of a new year is all the school supplies you have to buy. Your boys gotta sport the newest styles, you know. The freshest gear, the hottest athletic footwear, the most luxurious timepieces. That shit costs money. You know where this is headed, don't you? Patreon, assholes. That's the thing about being in the evanescent zone of emergence biz. It doesn't pay very well. So we're very grateful for whatever you can afford to give us. Thanks. Okay, on with the show. Two, one, two, three, four. Ow. That was both <laughs> soft and painful. <laughs> Me too. A very unsatisfying. We're clap. unpracticed. Our calluses have vanished. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we're back. Back home. Yeah. Back home again in Indiana, as the song goes. Staring at each other on Zoom again. But uh, we're back at it. So we were in the UK. We spent uh, over like a week and a half in Scotland and then went down to Mm -hmm. England to do a festival. We'll talk about all that because today is our holiday memories episode. I need to drop in some kind of musical bumper there. (laughs) Holiday memories, whatever music is appropriate for that. I can't help but see some visual transition too, but we can't do that. Some kind of like, you know. Star wipe. Like kind of, yeah, star wipe and then some, you know, cursive (laughs) <laughs> typography oh, oh a, a moving cursive line yeah. uh, with little sparklies uh, exactly. trailing in its weight yeah 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 like doves flying out and holiday, holiday memories. memories it was a good time and you know what was most special about it was that you and i got to hang out in per- and actually live together you and, yeah. ha- and and your wife helen and myself three's companying it <laughs> for uh <laughs> nine days so uh or was it eight days yeah that was fun yeah, so we were there. Okay, so like my itinerary, Helen and I flew in. We got into Edinburgh, had a couple of days just touristing it up. We saw the neoclassical toged statue of David Hume. I rubbed his shiny toe, which is apparently something you do traditionally for good luck in coming academic endeavors. Yeah, there's no verdigree on the toe. Yes. The, the it's toe is a shiny it's toe. A, it's like it was made yesterday. Yeah. Hume's toe. There's also a dog named Bobby, I think. I'm not sure. But there's a famous dog that has a statue of it set up. This is a dog that apparently after its master died, it spent every day oh, yeah. sitting at its master's grave and they erected this this metal statue Cute. of the dog, which also people pat the dog so you can see the shiny bit where people oh, pet it. Oh, nice. Uh, I've also pet the dog. So I did tourist stuff is what I'm saying. Yeah. When did you get in? I got in on the third, a couple of days later, I landed in Edinburgh and then made my way directly to St. Andrews and found out on the way that our check-in wasn't until four o'clock. So I went straight to the conference. The diverse intelligence, is it intelligences or intelligence? Yeah. Intelligence is plural. Diverse intelligences summer institute. 
or DC. We'd been invited to this summer institute to, we each gave a talk and did a live recording, which we will release soon. And uh, the conference was fantastic. It was fascinating. I loved it. So we spent like, and it's, it's, this is a three-week summer institute. It's like a big deal. Young PhDs, early career academics, uh, graduate students from all over the world go to this thing to basically gorge themselves on ideas pertaining to intelligence broadly construed. So you've got like computer programmers there. You've got biologists, um, sociologists, anthropologists, a lot of STEM right. and artists and philosophers and weirdos, uh, evidently. <laughs> <laughs> and us. And so I got there on the, on the third and went there the fourth. And then that's where we met. And we checked into our, our flat, which was fantastic. Wonderful flat we had in, in the St. Andrews. And uh, yeah, and we stayed for a week. So I feel like you need to say something about DC. I mean, you just described it perfectly, but the peculiar nature of it, the degree to which it is different, certainly from other academic institutions that I've been a part of, it's, there's a word that gets bandied about a great deal in academia, interdisciplinarity. I've written about this actually on my old blog, Dial M for Musicology. The problem with interdisciplinarity is that it is formed as a reaction to the way fields of study tend to concretize, tend to reify, to become like solid, siloed, and object yeah. thing, object like things. Yeah, siloed is the mot juste. Yeah, so the same word will be used in three different disciplines in completely different ways. And so dialogue becomes intelligence, very, for yeah, example, intelligence or, or symbol. <laughs> yes. And then so. The, community, the lines of communication break down. And so interdisciplinarity is always a project of de-siloing, of trying to establish border languages whereby different fields of knowledge can talk to one another. The disciplinary vocabularies, which is a jargony way of saying jargon, um, the <laughs> jargons that different disciplines throw up, the norms and standards which are affirmed up by all of the institutional bric-a-brac of, uh, you know, tenured lines, like academic appointments in a department and what we expect doctoral students to be able to do in their qualifying exams and the employment system, which tends to focus always on specialties that have to be already understood as part of some field for them even to be specialties at all. Like all of these things tend to make those silos. And the yeah. problem is that it is impossible to imagine durable structures. I mean, like maybe it is possible to imagine durable structures that somehow avoid that, but I can't think of how that would happen without the institution being not really a part of the sort of accredited world of academia with its jobs and its courses of study and degrees that you have to pay money for. So like interdisciplinarity is always a kind of elusive thing. It's a little bit like the idea of the nonviolent anarchist utopia. Right. You know, this is something that you, uh, anarchist utopians will argue about forever in a day. How can we create a stable state of no state? Right. And the problem is, and uh, Hakim Bey pointed this out in his various writings on the temporary autonomous zone and ontological anarchy, that Every new structure will reconcretize. The heads of the hydra will regrow. Like you'll yeah. end up with something like, you know, say you want to make Burning Man or, or something like Burning Man. 
or like Supernormal, the festival that we were at. I guess we'll get to that. And it's a peaceful scene and people are just being free and freaky and there's drugs, but there's no hassles and people are making art and it's wonderful. Okay. How do you hold on to that? Yeah. Right. Well, if after a while you're going to have some sanitation problems. And so you need to start engineering sanitation solutions. But then there's that one guy who keeps pissing where he shouldn't be pissing. And now we got to tell him not to, but he won't. So now, now we have to flog him. Yeah. And yeah, we have to put him in stocks. Yeah. Exactly. And, and next thing you him. know, <laughs> next thing, and next you, know, thing you know, it's the Roman it's Empire. The same, yeah, it's the same. It's exactly. Yeah. It's Babylon. <laughs> and, and the same thing happens with interdisciplinarity. Like you start off just trying to find a way to talk to each other. Maybe you could have like a weekend conference and everybody is feeling good. They're eating the finest of cheeses and drinking the finest of wines. And, you know, academics, the way to an academic's heart is through their belly, right? But after a while, those tenuous, just coming into being sort of communities, if they're successful, all of a sudden that just becomes another damn specialty right. that you're going to. That's how we got all the studies disciplines, like cultural right. studies and media studies. They become siloed too, eventually. They, they are not exempt from this or immune to this enantiodromia. That, and the great example yeah. is Michel Foucault. You know, right. when he was publishing those works in France, they were blowing minds. And then when they first came to the United States, their first impact on American academia was commentary. Because here was this guy who was like, okay, I guess we call him a philosopher, sort of, or sociologist, maybe. But really what he was doing was collating different areas of knowledge and coming up with shockingly novel ways of thinking about how how societies punish and how it's, societies regulate sexuality and so on. And now, decades on, Foucault is just another goddamn specialty that you can advertise when you have a tenure track job opening. Yeah. It's worth noting that Foucault's thesis, his doctoral thesis, was rejected. Also, that Derrida couldn't get um, uh, this is something I just heard. Uh, there was on a, a Entitled Opinions, it was on an episode of Entitled Opinions. I can't remember which one. Good podcast, by the way. A scholar mentioned that uh, Derrida couldn't get a doctoral committee together until he'd become famous in the U.S. So these guys were already working outside of the established channels and the halls of official discourse. And yet they still became these schools of thought that are just as rigid as any other. So it's just kind of ironic but yeah, that's the yeah. point is that no one's immune to this. This is what right. happens. But DC, however. <laughs> yeah. So let's work back to that. Yeah. So like DC is sort of like the intellectual equivalent of a temporary autonomous zone, if you yeah. ask me. I agree. Yeah. Just, just as super normal is the like free and freaky arts festival version of a temporary autonomous. So I actually had a conversation with a dude who was working on the, the TAC crew on the bus from Brazier's Park to Reading. He said exactly this, that Supernormal is a temporary autonomous zone. But that makes sense in that context, because Supernormal is like a more intimate version of the kind yeah. of experience that Burning Man represents. But like, nobody would think about, except me apparently, would think about saying DC is in any way like that. So do you think that's like a, a tenable... Is it, can I make that fly? Can I throw that out of the wall and make it stick? Oh, I think so. Absolutely. I just want to parenthetically mention that Supernormal is the festival we went to after DC, right. after Scotland. Yeah. We went down to Scotland, just in case that wasn't said. We'll get the Supernormal 
in a bit. Is DC, uh, hmm, I think so. I mean, in, in a sense, to me, DC was just doing what academia is supposed to do. Um, mm. you know, and, and I know that this is something Jacob, who is one of the creators of DC, Jacob Foster, sociologist from UCLA, fantastic man, brilliant mind. He, I hope we can get to discussing his thesis a little bit today because he has this idea of a, a sociology of the possible, which I find fascinating. Anyways, mm. Jacob is saying that people have said that they basically have told him, this is what I hoped grad school would be. This is what yeah. I hoped the academy would be like. and so. Insofar as the ideal academic world is like that, then I guess you could say that Hakim Bey would approve it. But at the same time, I just think that I don't have the kind, I'm not dichotomous about this. I don't have this kind of anti-institutional anarchic bent. I think institutions can thrive for literally centuries. They fossilize constantly, but they can also defossilize in interesting ways and remain very... um, I don't have an aversion to hierarchy per se. I don't have an aversion to institutionalization per se. Mm. So I just see it as the academy functioning properly. And hopefully Mm. that inspires the participants to uh, nurture that sort of culture in their respective little worlds such that more and more of the academic world will become like that. However, I mean, I'm not an academic, so I came into it as an outsider I have attended academic conferences, so I know how they can get, I know how they work, I know how they feel, and I've worked in other fossilized institutional settings. And so I did see how different it was. And I really do think, and this is the key thing, I don't know if Hakim Bey, I haven't read much Bey, but I don't know if he ever gets to this, that ultimately the solution to preventing an institution from fossilizing and undergoing a kind of an antiodromia and turning into its own opposite. And I'm using the term institution as just like a gathering or a, a zone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The key is who's in charge. The person, the people in charge of an operation, their personhood, their personality will set the stage for what happens. And you always see this. It's always when, you know, Stalin takes over from Lenin and then go, things go to hell. Not that they weren't hellish before, but you know, it's when the leadership changes. And I think that Jacob and Erica, who are a super couple, power couple, uh, and they're in charge of DC, do a great job of setting the table and setting the stage for the type of discourse they want to hear. And I find that that's the key. You know, it's to me, it comes down, maybe this, maybe this is cynical, but it comes down to who's in charge. And a good leader is a very rare thing. And I think that Jacob and Erica are leaders and exemplars of what they want to see. And it works. I think it works. I mean, I wasn't a participant. Oh, uh, yeah. No, it's true. Neither was I. People seem to rave about it as an experience. So I think that, uh, yeah. Yeah. We were on the faculty side more than the, because the, the participants are typically people at the end of their doctoral program towards the end people are well long in the doctoral program or in the early stages of a phd granted academic career i should say that in talking about temporary autonomous zones i'm speaking only in the broadest and most metaphorical sense because obviously the very fact that dc has leaders that it has um that it financing and all that yeah and it has financing and so on makes it very un-anarchist but right there's one particular way in which I feel like the, well, one reason that I invoke the concept is simply that, you know, the idea of like, if you want something that is kind of evanescent, 
then you have to have an attitude that like you don't get to keep it. You have to just sort of like dig it while it's happening and kiss it goodbye when it's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the reason I bring up the temporary autonomous of zone and anarchy is because there's that question of like, how do you get a perfect society or an ideal society, utopian society? And the idea is like that thing, whatever that thing we imagine when I utter those words, you know, nonviolent anarchist utopia, that can't exist as a thing. Right. That can only exist as an event, as a moment. As an it's, event. It, Correct. It's, yeah. You know, it has yeah. an event character. Yeah. Not a thing character. And it's that quality of like, there's there just are certain things in this world. And the beautiful nonviolent anarchist utopia is one, and interdisciplinarity is another. So, you know, to put it in Deleuze... And th- th- that you can't keep it. You can have it, but you can't you keep can't it. keep it. As long as we are cool with that, as long as we remember that, then everything is fine. So DC works as a summer institute, right. as a little time out from people's academic programs. Everybody's going to return, you know, in, in August and September to their various programs. That is as it should be. We'll silo back up and so on. But, you know, for that little period of time at that particular place, St. Andrew, Scotland, there is the event of interdisciplinarity. I'm sorry, you were going to say something. I was just, yeah, no, no, I'm agreeing with you. Um, Deleuze was very fond of like, distinguishing revolutions from what he called the becoming revolutionary of a revolutionary moment, right? And he's like, these things are absolutely opposed to one another. And we talked about this in our Nietzsche episode when we talked about the the untimely. So the revolution always turns ugly. The revolution always replicates the conditions that it was revolting against. Mm-hmm. It just happens that way. At the end, the pigs and the farmers look the same and no one can tell the difference, mm-hmm. you know? Right. That's just the nature of time and becoming. But, but, sorry, but uh, <laughs> there is a moment when the revolution is happening, when the, the becoming revolutionary is actually an event outside of the chronological order of time in which things turn to shit. Yes. And that outside, that's precisely, that's why I love the term temporary autonomous zone, because it's temporary, it's autonomous, so it's not in time. It's a causal in a strange sense. It's temporary, right. and it's a zone. And zones, as yes. we've said, are places where you can go, but you can't live there. Yep. If you live there, you'll be torn to shreds, so you'll turn into some strange animal or monster or something. You'll just become yeah. part of the scenery. Yeah. You'll lose your agency. And so, yeah, I guess what it is, the fact that it's a summer institute allows that sort of becoming to occur. And then it dissolves again, and then it's, it doesn't exist until next year. And that can help it preserve itself. But then again, you could say the same thing about Burning Man, and Burning Man seems to have been turned into a corporate joke. I'm not sure if that's true. I know some people are still, they still really dig Burning Man. To me, it feels a little bit like Walt Disney for people who like to drop acid, but um, <laughs> uh, it, it's just fine. Um, but yeah, I, think, I, think, yeah. I think even the, the, the most devoted burners will admit that of a certain age will admit that something has been lost since the late 90s when it comes to the, the kind of specific particular energy that that event brought into the world. Yeah. It happens in small little uh, sparks instead of as a big, huge burning man. Bonfire. Which was always like kind of the idea implicit in the temporary autonomous zone. Like uh, one of the fundamental problematics of counterculture has always been co-optation because everybody loves a good counterculture, right? Everybody yeah. wants in on the underground. 
that means that there's always going to be people trying to gatekeep the underground and people are going to be like, oh, it was cooler before. Right. I like their first albums before they got famous. Yeah. That kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And the thing about co-optation, if we decide that we want to believe in that as a concept, that's Herbert Marcuse's idea. Repressive desublimation. I don't want to get to all that. Mm -hmm. Suffice it to say... The easiest way for me to deal with that problematic is just to say at the front end, yeah, it'll happen. Like everything eventually succumbs to some kind of entropy, yeah, right? Exactly. Things die or they transform or they become everything you wish they weren't or wouldn't be, but whatever, accept it. Well, uh, they change. As a, as, a, as a Buddhist, obviously, that's how I'm going to view it. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah, everything changes, right? Yeah, they change. But like, as long as you can accept, like, yeah, but we had a pretty good run there, like, okay, Burning Man isn't what it was, but Burning Man was what it had to be at the time that it was. I, I mean, I yeah. speak in ignorance because I've never been to Burning Man and, and don't know really that much about it. But um, yeah, there's a passage I want to read. Okay. And I've read it on this show before, but that was so long ago. It was in one of the early episodes that uh, I feel like I can bring it back out again. This sure. is William Gibson's preface, or I guess forward to... Samuel Delaney's Dahlgren. Mm, yeah, great text. The most beautiful expression of what you said a moment ago about right. a coming. Hold on for just a second. I have to get my book. No one under 35 today can remember the singularity that overtook America in the 1960s, and by the way, this was written in 1995, and the generation that experienced it most directly seems largely to have opted for amnesia and denial. But something did happen. A city came to be in America. And I imagine I use America here as a shorthand for something else, perhaps for the industrialized nations of the American century. The city had no specific locale, and its internal geography was mainly fluid. Its inhabitants nonetheless knew, at any given instant, whether they were in the city or in America. The city was largely invisible to America. If America was about home and work, the city was about neither, and that made the city very difficult for America to see. There may have been those who wished to enter that city, having glimpsed it in the distance, but who found themselves baffled and turned back. Many others, myself included, rounded a corner one day and found it spread before them, a territory of inexpressible possibilities, a place remembered from no dream at all. We would find that there were rules there as well, but they would be different rules. Down one half-familiar street and then another, and perhaps we came to a park? It proved to be possible to die in the city, and no book was ever kept of the names of those dead. Many survived there, but did not return. Some said that those who did return had never quite been there. But for those who remained, something else gradually happened. The membrane eroded, America and the city seeping into one another, until today there is no America and there is no city, only something born from their intermingling. Mm. I would not suggest that Dahlgren is any sort of map of that city, intentional or otherwise, but that they bear some undeniable relationship. <laughs> Those who would prefer to forget the city say that it produced no true literature, but that too is denial. 
Right. In Dahlgren, the unmediated experience of the singularity has survived, free of all corrosion of nostalgia, which, by the way, I think he's absolutely right about that. I know of no novel that captures that zoniness better than Dahlgren. Mm. And then the bit I really want to read is this. When I think of Dahlgren, I remember this. A night in DuPont Circle, Washington, D.C., amid conditions of civil riot, when someone, as the police arrived with their staves and plastic shields, tossed a malt of cocktail up into the shallow stone bowl of the Admiral's memorial goblet. The district's lesser monuments were often in decay, and the circle's tall fountain had stood dry for however many summers, and I suppose trash had accumulated there, mostly paper, crumpled Dixie cups tossed up by children making baskets and imaginary hoops. I did not hear the bottle shatter, only the explosive intake of gasoline igniting, flames throwing black shadows against the concrete, our shadows running. We all were running, and in the eyes of a Kennedy-jawed girl from the Virginia suburbs I would see something I had never seen before, a feral shiver, a bright wet shard of ancient light called panic, where dread and ecstasy commingled utterly. And then the first canisters fell, trailing gas, and she was off, running, like a deer, and in that moment, as beautiful. And I ran after her, and lost her, and sometimes I imagine she is running still. Several years later, settling into the long slough of the pre-punk 70s when Dahlgren was first published, I remember being simply and frequently grateful to Delaney for so powerfully confirming that certain states had ever been experienced at all by anyone. The flame-lit park, already so far behind. Wonderful. So now we know. Oh, I love that. I so love now, that piece of writing. It's, it's so just good. It's two of the best pages ever written. It's so good. Um, so that was the first Burning Man. <laughs> yes. Uh, and no one ever recovered it in a weird way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. And, and again, at the end, to communicate what he means, he needs to resort to a kind of pure poetics. And that's mm -hmm. where you see... Oh, the zone. It's in the poetic interstitials. The police coming in, the Molotov cocktail, this the panic. And he, of course, here he's invoking the ancient god Pan as a presence. And maybe Pan is the god of the event. I mean, Pan's hour is noon, and uh, noon is the hour where there are no shadows, right? So it's the moment where things are revealed in their suchness. One might say that Pan is the god of the event. It's like naked lunch, the idea yeah. of like the moment that you see what is at the end of everybody's fork. Exactly, exactly. It's like a flashbulb moment where everything is suddenly revealed, but all you can talk about is the retinal image, the retinal imprint of the after image. Yeah. And that's all you'll ever see. And that's poetry, you know? And mm. um, so I love that passage. It's one of my favorite, that, that preface to Dahlgren is one of my favorite things ever. I'm glad you brought it up. So are you saying that DC uh, achieved this? Well, obviously it would be silly to try and draw a connection between this like wild vision of ecstasy and madness and so on. And what is at the end of the day, let's be real, it's still an academic conference. <laughs> yeah, but... Let's not go crazy here. Nevertheless, I think that often what we're talking about is a spirit, right? Mm. A spirit of possibility, yeah. Yeah, and maybe it would do well to actually personify it as an actual spirit. Not chaos, exactly. Eris, the goddess of chaos in the Greek pantheon, is not exactly 
a goddess that you want to invoke, as the Discordians discovered at their cost. Right. It's not chaos exactly, but it's like this little goddess of the zone. Yeah. Or or maybe actually we don't need to invent a god or a goddess. We can just invoke Pan, right? Yeah. Except um, that DC Pan was much more in his um, Hermes embodiment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would say the god that presides over DC is Hermes, especially since it concerns intelligence. Um, of course. But yes, of course. As, yeah. but as Jairus told us, it's super normal because we got to meet Jairus and hang out with him at Supernormal, which was a, a, an absolute pleasure and honor to talk to him. You know, he is big on the idea that Pan is Hermes even more so, is how he puts it. I think mm. he's quoting something there. But Pan is Hermes even more so. <laughs> mm. So definitely, I, I certainly felt the presence of Hermes at this conference. I love the concept of intelligence. Uh, and I love the idea that you could have a conference talking about this concept and seeing how it maps onto various modalities and on multiple tiers of nature. Like this is great because they're talking about intelligence in the context, for example, of machine learning and artificial intelligence, but also animal intelligence, human intelligence. It's very, very open. It has a very loose concept of intelligence to allow as many people to take part as possible. And I yeah. found that really, really eye-opening. In fact, I was, yeah. I was amazed by, and this is a combination of DC and also the, the DC podcast, um, whose title I forget, we'll put it in the show notes. But the, uh, many, Is it Many Minds? Many Minds, right. Hosted- Kent yeah. C. Cooper writer. Yeah, Kent C. Cooper writer is a- uh, He's part of the staff and organizers of the of the conference, but is also a, um, the the host of the podcast. It's a wonderful podcast. But listening to that and listening to the talks at DC, I was very very happy to see to what extent scientists, perhaps as opposed to humanities people, how ready scientists are to entertain the idea of a kind of imminent distributed intelligence in nature, yeah, of teleological processes acting without representational thought. I found that really amazing to see. And they're being forced into that by the, the you know, the the data they're collecting, by what they're observing in nature. And so we're moving, I, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a biased sample, of course, this particular conference, but it feels to me like we're kind of barreling into a kind of panpsychism, which will become de rigueur eventually, I think, which I think is a good step forward, at least towards something that I, a universe that I want to live in. So that was cool. Just that very openness, the openness that's asked of you when you step into that conference ensures that a particular type of, of scholar will participate, but also that scholars will loosen up some of the armature, you know, and, and yeah. open themselves to, to strange ideas. What I also liked is that they allowed all these scholars to come in, like the faculty, come in and do lectures on whatever it was they were working on. And so the way this institute is set up, it allows for a lot of noise, you know, not, not bad noise, but it allows like the biologist will just speak as a biologist and then the psychologist will come in and speak as a psychologist. And you have to kind of find your way through all this maze, you know, it's yes. not, it's not doing the inter, it's not doing any translation work for you. It's confronting you, with, yeah. at least in the way I experienced it. It's confronting you with all these different thinkers doing their thing. And it's up to you to make the connections in ways that are useful to your own work. So that's really cool. Yep, it just, absolutely. It just confronts you with different ideas constantly. And I really like that. I want to jump back a second because I left an idea hanging 
and an idea that was coming out sort of ass backwards, like I wasn't expressing it well. So I want to think about like the idea of a god presiding over something and and whatever is at that moment that William Gibson is writing about in the the fountain in Washington, D.C. in the 60s, you know, that whatever god or goddess is presiding over that moment in some distant way is also presiding over a place like D.C. And that sounds ridiculous. If you've been to D.C., if you're one of the high-end scholars, people like John Krakauer, for example, fucking genius scholars in whose company I was unworthy to stand, um, <laughs> like... It would be ridiculous for, on a certain level to be talking about this high-end academic gathering in such terms. But I mean something specific, and I'm going to try and express this. So there was a tweet recently. I can't believe I'm I'm citing a tweet. Uh, wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> yeah, no, it wouldn't be. Actually, this was um, somebody named Coleman Ridge on Twitter with a like a screenshot of, I don't know, Instagram or some shit. I don't know anything about social media. I am barely on Twitter as it is. My uh, handling of the weird studies, Twitter is uh, terrible and negligent, but no one else wants to do it. So there it is. <laughs> In any event, here is the thing that Coleman Ridge is quoting from somebody named Copper Badge, whoever that may be, writing... In 2019, I have often used Barbie to explain Greek mythology, and people laugh until I explain it, and then they get really serious and thoughtful. I say, the Greeks ascribed aspects to gods. Apollo had many aspects, but all were Apollo. He's like Barbie in that way. She's an astronaut, a veterinarian, and a roller skater. But no matter which of those things she is in the moment, she is always still Barbie. She is Barbie in her aspect as... Love it. Then people get not only the idea of aspects of godhood, but also, well, the changeable yet eternal nature of Barbie, which I think is wonderful. And um, Coleman Ridge comments, Barbie makes sense as a god. She is eternal, indestructible, beautiful, inhuman, eternally virgin, capable of becoming anything without changing in any essential way, and perky under all circumstances. And then somebody commenting on Coleman Ridge named Vixen Virasamy saying this is also broadly how Hindu deities work. And the word avatar basically means aspect in this sense. So that is actually very informative to me. It's, it it makes so much me. sense. Yeah. I mean, why yeah, she help called, me understand aspects better. Why is she called Barbie? Her name's Barbara. What does Barbara mean? It means a woman barbarian. She is a pagan, pagan presence in the modern world. That's why she's named Barbie. She's a goddess. Oh, so that's awesome. I, I didn't like even think of that. Yeah. But so when I talk about Spirit of Pan kind of hanging out a little bit at DC, I'm not saying that this like this preapic god of fucking sex and of insanity. Fucking, yeah, <laughs> yeah is, is showing up and, and, you know, like because this is a academic conference, people are nice and well behaved and they hardworking and intellectually serious and responsible. It's in freaking Burning Man. Not that there's anything wrong with Burning Man, but like... Or Supernormal. But, yeah. Or Supernormal, which is also awesome, but different. Yeah. But it's Pan in his aspect, in a kind of Hermes aspect. It's Pan in his most respectable and academic. Pan the Shepherd. Yeah. But it's still Pan. There's still that spirit of 
the thing that emerges in the event. And I love what you said a moment ago, where you were like, you see the Molotov cocktail go blam, and what you are left with is a retinal burn, like an after image on your eyes. But at that moment, it's that moment of blam is already gone. Yeah. That moment of blam is the event, the unfolding, the emergence of something new. The God, And yeah. that is the thing that happens fucking rarely, yeah. right? Rarely in interdisciplinarity for all the reasons that we were going into in the earlier part of this show. But it can happen. And the fact that it happens at all, every time it happens, is kind of a remarkable thing. When thought takes on an event character rather than a thing character. Yeah. And that's yeah. what I was trying to formulate about what is going on at DC. I really felt that. So I did my talk, which was on symbolism and synchronicity. And then I got an invitation to, because faculty, we were encouraged to make ourselves available to participants to, to meet and discuss. And a group of participants who were working on the idea of the extended self or the distributed self, like how the self is actually kind of always already social distributed out there. Um, they invited me out for a, a drink and to talk about it. And it, it was wonderful because, I mean, I was coming at it from, you know, my own background, which is in hypercontinental philosophy and art and that sort of thing. And these were, I mean... Uh, one was a neuroscientist, one was an analytic philosopher, one was was a musician, I believe. The point is they were coming at things from a particular and 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 yet they were really interested in hearing about Gautamer and Martin Buber. It was just this wonderful thing where we we were all kind of speaking different languages, no doubt, but somehow that didn't matter. It was it reminded me of the the apostles, right after the Holy Spirit descends upon them, and they go out and they there's the speaking in tongues episodes, right, where everyone can understand everybody, even though everyone is speaking different languages. It's weird. It wasn't. There was no. This is. I'm going back to this. There was no effort to translate. It was simply everyone speaking their own language, and but everyone is responsible for finding their connections, and I I think that's where mm. true interdisciplinarity is born. From my limited experience, it seems to me like it's not about creating the jargon that will allow you to seamlessly translate terms from one discipline to another, but rather it's in the friction, the uh, etymological or semantic friction between different languages that all the creative energy appears. In a way, what I was trying to say earlier is that DC seems like Jacob and Erica allow this sort of friction, I, I called it noise, but this, this semantic friction to happen. So that, mm -hmm. you know, if I'm talking about my version of the symbol and you're a linguist or a semiotician, you're talking about your version of the symbol, we're not using the word in the same way. But if we both commit to our way of using the word, there's a friction there. And in that friction, some new symbology might be possible, some new way of thinking of the symbol. And it's because you allowed the friction. You didn't try to translate things. You allowed the, the noise, the sparks, the Molotov cocktail to fly. And then maybe something comes out of it maybe not you know and that's it's more like art right you go to a concert yeah you listen to an opera or a, you know as a, let's just stick with the genres we were exposed to of like experimental black metal like I, I saw this one show on the friday night you weren't at super normal yet but i saw a band called imperial 
Triumphant. That's what they're called out of New York. Oh, what yeah. a good name. <laughs> they, it blew, oh, it blew now my fucking I'm, Now mind. I'm kicking myself that we didn't name the podcast Imperial <laughs> Triumphant. <laughs> yeah. That is such a fucking awesome name. So they there they were. And, and they were, you know, it's not the whole show. It's not like the show's a, a, a lecture or a clear message that's being conveyed. The show's an event. But in that event, there'll be moments, things that spark. There'll be connections made. And it'll be different for everybody. And then the, the, it seems to me like being a good music listener, being a good thinker ultimately is about believing your own moments of connection, not just mm. ironing out the idiosyncrasies of an experience so that you get the kind of gist of it that everybody else got, but rather really going into those little rifty moments of connection and going, what can I make with this? I have this spontaneous interpretation of this one song. Instead of asking yourself, is that the right interpretation? Did I listen to it correctly? Am I a good enough black metal fan to be able to interpret this shit? <laughs> no, just walk away with that interpretation. Make something with it. It's something that exists right now only in your head. And if you don't express it, if you don't do something with it, it'll just disappear. Yeah. But that comes with the friction, I think. That's what I love about music festivals. Just segueing now to uh, the Supernormal. We can go back to DC a few stuff. I, I still have a lot to say about it, but it's that Supernormal is a weird festival. Like it's, it's an experimental arts and music festival. It's got all kinds of shit. And it, it's really is kind of jarring to move from one show to the other because it's so different, the genre wise and just in terms of intention, what's going on in each. But, um, uh, there's a higher unity, which is the experimental part. W what Supernormal is about is, is about exploring boundaries, about pushing into boundaries. It's about testing the elasticity of art, testing the elasticity of meaning. And I found that really gratifying precisely because it was so jarring, you know, from one event to the next. I felt so much friction in myself. It was very generative. Well, you had a different Supernormal experience than I did because you went to Supernormal... I think right after we were done at DC. So you arrived on the Friday and the festivals like Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas Helen and I took a, an extra day in Oxford, spent a day at the Ashmolean, which was, that's my kind of thing. That's how I like to do holidays. Yeah. Eat a lot of cheese, go to museums. That's basically my, my routine. And boy, did I eat some good cheese on this. My sister, we ended up after Supernormal, you came back to Canada and I hung around for another week, went to my sister's place in rural Suffolk, which is very beautiful. And my sister likes cheese as much as I do. So that was awesome. Yeah. Ate a lot of cheese, but I wasn't going to talk about cheese. I was going to talk <laughs> about the Supernormal Festival. Yeah. So you and I had different experiences. I was only there on the Sunday and we did our show on like at 1230 on Sunday. And before then, we're pretty much mostly hanging out with Mark Pilkington, the big homie from Strange Attractor. Love that guy. It was so awesome actually hanging out with him and meeting him in person. I have to say that Mark Pilkington really took me under his wing. Like he picked me up at the, with Gyrus, picked me up at the train station in Reading, gave me a tent, a couple of yoga mats and a sleeping bag, fed me. Uh, he was a wonderful host. Yeah, I mean, you don't you don't have a good publisher until he's you make it, giving make it you sound a, like you make you sound like a foundling, like he took you in and gave you a bath and and, <laughs> and some toys after my absolutely hellish experience of, of navigating the UK train system on the day where everything was they were all going on strike. 
Um, I had trains being canceled left and right. I had to take the underground in London for the first time in my life between trains. It was just fucking harrowing. He was in constant communication over text. I really felt like my dad was picking me up at the end of a long, hard day uh, (laughs) when I saw him. And uh, and, uh, by the way, I wasn't camping outside his house. Uh, He he was camping as well. Like uh, just, just. uh, There's a big sort of area of tents. Yeah. So so he was there with his family who were amazing uh, and some friends, neighbors. It was a wonderful experience and they really took me in and they were super nice. I was in a weird state, like um, just because I'm not, I'm not, you know, I've traveled a lot for work, but I'm not a good traveler. I feel, uh, I, I feel like, you know, to go back to William Gibson, I feel like my fucking soul is still hovering over the Atlantic when I'm in Europe and, <laughs> and slowly catching up with me. And, um, and they were great. I mean, it was wonderful hanging out with Mark, but we'll get back to that. So let, let's, I interrupted you. No, I was just saying that. I didn't see as much oh, of the festival. Right, right. And also also because I am much more bourgeois than you are. Yeah. I can't even front like I'm a cool guy. I can't even pretend. They offered us accommodation at Brazier's. So like it's a, a an English country house. It's like a stately home. This yeah. beautiful, you know, it's in the National Registry of Monuments or whatever it's called. Um and uh it's on the grounds of the festival in fact it's yeah. it's the hub this yeah. mansion has been a kind of countercultural hub for decades and decades uh ian fleming's family originally owned it which is kind of interesting. i heard that yeah isn't the that james great? bond guy so it's funny because it's a little if i say down at heels that sounds rude but i don't intend it to be it's not, you know, per everything perfect and so on it's a little scruffy but it still has that deep soul of an old home like that. It, it hasn't has, it has a fissure cutting right like just slicing it in half all the way down into the tarn. <laughs> no, it's nothing like that. <laughs> it's much happier than the house of Usher. Um that's great. It's a this a house with good vibes. Like apparently uh like Mick Jagger um, Marianne Faithful, yeah. And yeah. Marianne Faithful used to hang out there in the 60s and so like Guy Debal spoke there. Oh, no shit. Really? Yeah, yeah supposedly, oh. yeah. Well, so, you know, they were like, well, you can camp or you can stay in the house. I'm like, thank you. We will stay in the house. I like beds. And, you know, it's like a really nice bedroom that really felt like a bedroom in an English stately home. It, and I felt, was. I felt like yeah. fucking Mick Jagger. <laughs> Helen and I were like Mick Jagger and Marianne Faithful. Awesome. Except we were in separate twin beds, which somewhat... <laughs> So I mean, maybe not exactly I think like Mick, Mick Jagger, Jagger and, and Marianne Faithful would push the beds together. <laughs> Whereas I'm just like, oh, this is too much work. I'm maybe tired. Not, yeah. I'm going to I'm going to bed, honey. Yeah, it's exactly, nine o'clock. Exactly. <laughs> did you see any <laughs> that, shows? That's how I party. Yeah. Uh, so after we did our show, I did need to go and have a bit of a lie down. Uh, <laughs> but then <laughs> I'm not going to front like I'm some kind of wild man. Yeah. I always thought, I heard about Hunter S. Thompson. You know, if everyone knows Hunter S. Thompson, he made a whole career as this kind of wild man, gonzo journalist who would do every drug you left lying around. Um, <laughs> yeah. And apparently, as he got older, as happens to us all, he just actually liked to spend a quiet evening in sipping a scotch and reading a book. Like, oh, yeah. you know, because at the end of the day, the dude is a writer and, and that's, you know... 
I think a lot of it was probably, I mean, he did do some crazy shit. And, um, and apparently yeah. it became a fucking curse that he was constantly being invited to university lecture series and the student groups that would invite him inevitably they'd show up with like a mountain of coke and (laughs) you know like all these drugs and stuff and he'd be like oh shit okay and i'm sort of sort of joylessly grinding his way through the mountains of drugs that were being proffered to him I feel like it's just as well at the front end to be like okay if you invite me to your countercultural festival you're going to get a very boring middle-aged man who likes to take a nap in the afternoon. That's what you were going to get. But afterwards, I've, I ran into Jairus and we hung out for a long time. He uh, he stood me a beer. Thanks, nice. Jairus. And uh, chatted about this and that. And then there was actually a fan, like a fan of the show, who just kind of came out of the woodwork. A uh, really nice person. Somebody training to be a psychotherapist. We got in this whole conversation. It was sort of like... It's that kind of a place, you yeah. know, you, you run into, you get, you get to talking to somebody next thing, you know, you've been talking for ages and you've gotten into all kinds of deep shit that you, uh, whatever people are bringing a naked version of themselves, a friendly and open and ready for anything. So like the conversation I got in with, uh, Tom, Hey Tom, if you're listening, I don't know if Tom is going to listen to this show, but Tom was a dude who was on the crew, the work crew, all volunteers. And he and I got to talking on the bus when all was said and done and we were heading off to Reading. And he's the guy I was having a conversation with about temporary autonomous zone. Like, we're just like a couple of guys just throwing down in a bus and chatting and 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 like all these barriers that you normally carry with you are gone. And the thing is that normally if I were listening to someone else's podcast and they're talking about this, I would be thinking to myself, oh God, that sounds dreadful. I wouldn't want that at all. I don't want people to be talking to me with their boundaries down. I am militantly pro-boundaries, but not at a temporary autonomous zone. It's like different rules apply. Yeah. You just... You're in the zone. If you're going to show up... Yeah, you're in the zone. You're in a you're zone. You're part of it. And so you you go with it. Yeah. And so you have these conversations. Sometimes they're almost dreamlike conversations. And then a band starts playing and you hear human leather... It's the right. na- wonderful, f- wonderful name of a band that played right after us at the Red Kite Tent. And you're like, I'm going to go and see what's shaking over there. And you're just like having little adventures, yeah. you know, just drifting encounters. from what, but you just encounters. Yeah. And it was like that until I went to bed hours before everybody else did, I'm sure. But like, you know, that's how I roll. Do we sound like two guys who just did something social after three years of isolation? I think we do. But I, I think th- we I do. I think many people probably sound <laughs> that way these days. <laughs> it was intense. It was really intense. Um, well, well yeah. I was talking about this with Jairus, that like I was processing the fact that, oh, I've really worn myself a groove here over two, three years. Yeah. I was shut up in my house and I didn't really mind anymore. And yeah. here I was like, it it felt to me almost as if the rest of the world had, I, I know, obviously, this is not true, but feeling as if the rest of the world has been kind of motoring on without me. But I'm like Punxsutawney Phil. I'm like a groundhog poking its head up above the ground after being, after hibernating in the cold and the dark for months, years, centuries, possibly, and poking my head around. And it feels like it's all just happening to me. But I have to remind myself, no, this is happening to everybody.
I want to go back to DC because I, I'd like to talk about a couple of, of the talks we heard. What mm. was most memorable to you at, at DC at the conference? You asked me that before and when we were in St. Andrews sitting around the kitchen table and I evaded the question. Yeah. I mean, John Krakauer's presentation, I had, I missed the, his second one, which bums me out because I did not use my time wisely, but, uh, his, the, the, the one we saw together, that was an interesting talk. That right? was good. So John Krakauer is a neurologist and he's the brother of David Krakauer, who's the president. Is that the title? I'm not sure. The leader, the, the boss man at uh, the Santa Fe Institute. And John Krakauer is not the same John Krakauer who wrote Into the Wild. All those books about mountains, yeah. All those it's, books, This is John, yeah. John with an H, not J-O-N. H. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, he gave a bracing and sobering talk, I thought, on our eagerness as scientists, as researchers, to attribute thought to animals which he thinks have not yet passed the litmus test of what constitutes human thought. So he was basically making a distinction, a very interesting epistemological distinction between intelligence, which he, he readily admits is all over nature. Teleological, goal-oriented intelligence is all over nature. But we have to be careful when we try to reduce human thought to that sort of intelligence, because human thought for him is representational, it's imaginative. It involves imitation on a level that hasn't been matched by any species of non-human animal, according to him, including primates, and certainly hasn't been achieved by artificial intelligence, according to him. So he's a skeptic. I found his talk actually really interesting because I had never made a strong metaphysical distinction or epistemological distinction between thought and intelligence. But I do think that there is something going on there. And I don't know how philosophical he gets in his conceptualizing this stuff, but it felt like a really promising avenue, not in the sense that it will exclude animals. Because I do believe, I think that some animals are capable of imaginative thought, but it is strange that humans can do what they do. Before we start moving the goalposts so that human intelligence becomes synonymous with all kinds of other, I think it's important to keep in our sights just how fucked up human thought is as an event in the cosmos. And I found that refreshing. And I think a lot of other people did as well. I, there was some resistance to it. I, I thought that talk was really interesting. I also really enjoyed meeting Ryan Hecker. I hope that's how you pronounce his name. He's doing his PhD at Cambridge and he is... Um, or hasn't he already... Actually, isn't he doing a postdoc? I thought, he'd, oh, I thought right. he already had his PhD. Right. Probably, yeah. He is working on... Charles Babbage is uh, Charles Babbage is a 19th century inventor who basically invented the digital computer, the difference engine, which never got built while he was alive, but was built in the 90s and works as intended. And the analytical engine, which was uh, another computer he designed, if he had been properly financed in the 19th century, the digital revolution would have started then, and then the world would have gone completely steampunk. <laughs> but uh, but what's interesting about Ryan's work is that he's correlating Babbage's work in technology with Neoplatonic and Christian angelology and exploring how deeply mystical Babbage was, you know, because Babbage had this crazy cosmogonic vision. He really saw his machine as a kind of divine event in the history of the cosmos. This is like very much along the lines of Eric Davis's argument in Technosis that technology is 
deeply, deeply rooted in religion and mm-hmm. uh, mystical thought. So that was really interesting too. I loved the, the idea that you could talk about angelology and in, in artificial intelligence, because to me, that link is seldom explored as far as I'm concerned, as far as I know. I think if you boiled away all of the other things that happened, the many wonderful events and encounters, I probably would be left with one. And that would be the image of a young chimpanzee outsmarting the Mm. patriarch of that chimp's clan with a little bit of well-timed deceit. I loved that. That was was amazing. That was so awesome. So this was on the Friday, I think, of the penultimate week of DC. And this was an old colleague classmate, graduate school colleague of Erica Cartmel, the anthropologist who is Jacob's partner and co-honcho of DC. I am struggling now to remember the name of this person. Uh, I mean, this woman was like fucking Lara Croft, like, you know, an academic uh, who lives, it would seem, an incredibly adventurous life, living among chimpanzees and stuff. Cat Hobbiter. Hobbiter? So, because I'm not sure I am pronouncing her name at all, her last name correctly, I will be a little presumptuous and just call her Kat, like we're old friends. So Kat did a presentation about chimpanzees' gestural language. You know, chimpanzees have a vocabulary of gestures that they use to communicate. And because Kat has spent a lot of time in the field with chimpanzees observing their kinship structures and how they those evolve over time and how as particularly females move from one clan i don't know what the proper term is for a social grouping of chimpanzees but uh i'll just say clan because i can't think of a better term um as particularly young females move from one clan to another you see a kind of cultural distribution you see gestures that are maybe common in clan a becoming more common in clan B, or, you know, you see learning and adaptation through language, but it's like gesture. And so there's a lot of interesting stuff about that. But where her talk ended up going was about deceit, because this is a really interesting question. If we're talking about the cognitive and linguistic capacities of other animals, not just primates, but also corvids, uh, we heard an awful lot about the truly stunning cognitive capacities of corvids during this whole thing. Yeah. Then, you know, one interesting question, it's like, okay, something that human beings do, uh, do any other animals do this? We can lie. We are very good at deceit. And the reason why that's so interesting is because you can't lie or deceive without a very strong theory of other minds, without knowing that the other is another creature thinking like you, right? Exactly. To be able to know that they know that you know. Yes. So deceit is a big marker in animal intelligence, right? Yeah. And I am sure, um, no, this is what happens when you have interdisciplinary work. I'm an outsider to this field. And I don't know if it's widely considered impossible that non-human animals can exhibit deceit or whether everybody's like, oh yeah, deceit, sure, why not? She listed a bunch of primates that do display it. She, she, it hadn't been observed in chimps specifically, but it has been observed sporadically in other species. She was trying to make a case that it does happen with chimps, I believe. Yeah. Well, I mean, and as a scientist, she's very concerned with having a robust data set. And so 
what was clearly like the aha moment of this it was the last moment. It was the culminating moment of her talk. This marvelous image that she was able to capture during her researches of an adolescent chimp, a young male chimp, learning how to crack nuts using a hammer stone and an anvil stone. And the anvil stone should be flat, right? Otherwise, the nut is going to kind of roll away. And this little guy is trying not very successfully to crack nuts. And notice this, there's a very good anvil stone over close to where the patriarch of this clan is sitting. And this cat explained, you don't just go into the personal space of an elder, more dominant chimp and just take his shit. Like, you, you're not going to be permitted to do that. And so this younger subordinate chimp does something that anybody in human society recognizes. He tricks him. He makes this kind of gesture, a broad, like, overhand windmilling arm gesture. Which that, means let's play, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. a play invitation. And what's interesting is that chimpanzees will make a kind of a grin as part of an invitation to play. And if they intend to play, they can't not make that face. Like, it seems to be more or less automatic yeah, it's, uh, in, a way, yeah. in, in a way that facial expressions are not automatic for human beings. So what was really interesting is that there was a tell. We saw the little clip where the chimp gets up, makes this gesture, and the older chimp gets up like, oh, you want to play? And the younger chimp very adaptly swipes the anvil stone he had his eye on and goes off and uh, mission accomplished and starts to crack nuts again. Right. And the older chimp doesn't even understand that he just got played, right? And so right. I, I cracked up. I thought that was like... It was really good. It was it was so relatable. It was like Buster Keaton stuff. Like, it was like silent film funny, you know? Yes. Like, yeah, yeah. And the tell yeah. was that the younger chimp didn't grin. Yeah. He did a gesture that was, in a certain way, evacuated of that sincere meaning. And where we go with that, it's like, well, I have this one clip... And we have this whole digital project where, you know, it's like crowdsourced. You can go and look at different clips on the project website and you can track the movement and you can report if you see a certain kind of gesture. And ideally, we could, as scientists, develop a robust data set. We can have lots of examples of chimpanzees doing versions of this kind of deceitful gestural communication. Yeah. And that's interesting to me because, like, they're interpreting, we're interpreting, but we don't have robust data sets because, as I said to you between sessions, you know, if I'm talking about like Andrew W.K. song, The Devil's on Your Side, with like that has like a three minute circle of fifths progression that I talked about in my talk, like there is no other piece of music that does that. I can't create a robust data set of pieces that do it. Like we're talking about singularities that seem to call forth for some kind of interpretation as opposed to social behavior that only will really truly communicate its meaning when you get a whole lot of it, like a robust data set. So, you know, that's sort of where that talk ended up. It's like, we need a lot more of this before we can say anything certain about what this one gesture means. But what really struck me was that Buster Keaton moment, the degree to which everybody in the room laughed, everybody had that connection, you know? But, but this is what's so interesting, and I'm going to bring this back to John Krakauer's talk. Because, yes, yes, I agree. In that singular moment watching that video, we all knew what that chimp was doing. It was so 
immediately understandable what was going on. It performs the gesture that means let's play. The elder chimp gets up and then he just swipes the stone and goes back to where he was. But then the other chimp just sits down. Yeah. Like it never happened. And this is the weird thing about it was very human, but it was human comedy. It wouldn't have worked in reality, right? No human could have fallen for that trick because you can see him right there with the stone after. But yeah. the, the chimp was distracted. So then he just sits down, but it, it all happened right in front of him, which is interesting because it means that there is deceit. And there is everything you'd expect to see in a kind of human interaction, equivalent human interaction, except that the equivalent human interaction would be a mechanical comedy, would be funny because it lays bare what is subtly going on in human behavior. Humans have to be much better at deceiving, but chimps don't have to be very good at deceiving. It seemed like, and of course I'm just speculating here, but it seemed like the elder chimp, the minute the semiosis was finished, the minute the sign of let's play was gone, he just went right back to what he was doing before. Right. He, he didn't go, wait a second, what happened here? Why didn't hey, he smile? Hey, like, you tricked me. Yeah. It was like, yeah, but it was like that level of comedy. It was like somebody taking something out of someone's purse right in front of them. So it's crazy because on the one level, I'm like, oh my God, this is so... Um, endearing and look how human chimps are but at the same time the more human animals seem to me when i think about it after the deeper the chasm that separates us from other animals becomes and i know that's an unpopular thing but i'm just trying not to shift the goalposts yeah and, well um, we don't have to say that one is better than the other it's not about think, better it's about yeah. different yeah and yeah. and and i do think that actually sometimes when we're trying so hard i once wrote about this when it's talking about actually magical mentalities let's say we're talking about western europeans around the year 1000 and we're trying to imagine the life world of such people a life world in which demons, devils, like various incorporeal entities are like real forces that you have to contend with. They're things that complicate your life, right? And uh, I, I think I was writing about um, Charles Taylor and him talking about how the emergence of the buffered self is the emergence of a selfhood, a kind of subjectivity that doesn't acknowledge it can't coexist with those forces yeah yeah exactly yeah. and so somebody i know who's a medievalist was like well careful you don't want to other the medieval mind which point well taken othering is a thing where you're like oh they were it was an age of faith that's a right where i think a too crude application of charles taylor's thought might take you these simple childlike medieval peasants, not at all like ourselves. And that could be very condescending. And certainly there's a long and disgraceful heritage of that sort of thing in colonialism, right? Yeah. Well, it's, I was going to say, it's not just condescending to medieval people. It's condescending to a lot of living cultures. Right, right? exactly. Right. But then at the other side of it, othering might define one end of a continuum of problems in relating to other minds. Yeah. And the other end of the continuum might be smothering, not othering, right. but smothering, which is to say, oh, we're all the same and you smother difference. Yeah. And because you're trying so very hard not to make invidious comparisons 
to suggest that one form of intellect or intelligence is higher, quote unquote, than the other. And you're so eager to avoid that for good reasons that then you are apt to smother what actually makes different intelligences distinctive. Mm -hmm. And you stand to abuse yeah. these animals in a totally different way. So, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's super important. I wrote something to that effect in Reclaiming Art. It was like, it's fine in, to downplay, let's say, the uniqueness of the human, but let's at least recognize, you know, there's a lot that we admire in other species. Maybe there's something to admire in the human as well. Maybe there's something, it's not about better, but it's about, it's a difference that makes a difference, yeah. right? As Gregory yeah. Bateson would say, there's a difference that makes a difference. The fact that we have the Summer Institute to discuss chimp intelligence makes a fucking difference yep. when we talk about human intelligence. The fact that we can put ourselves in the mind of a chimp and empathize so deeply with that little chimp and the elders that we can understand what's going on there because we have a kind of spontaneous apprehension of other minds. And then we also have those moments of total opacity. Yeah. Where yeah. E even but in we the know same it's clip, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love, I, I love your example of like, yeah, but what was the elder chimp doing? Not reacting at all in a way a human being would, which isn't mm. to say, oh, it's dumb. It's just different. And like yeah. a moment of like opacity. I'm like, I can't just look straight through this gesture and see a subjectivity or an intention. Um, moments of alternating opacity and transparency. That, in fact, is precisely what happens in interdisciplinarity when it's cracking, when it's really on, when it's happening. Ah, that's brilliant. Nice way of looping it all back. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>